uh, good morning and welcome to our live gathering here at the Bridge Zoom edition. Uh, my name is Eden and I am very happy to be your host this morning. Um, we acknowledge that we here in Abbotsford meet and live on the traditional lands of the Stolo, Kwatlin, and Semiamu people. Uh, we also acknowledge that they called this home long before our ancestors arrived here and that there is a tension about living and being here without there ever having been a treaty or agreement with these same nations. We ask, Lord, you have mercy. Um, I really, I anticipate our gatherings, whether they're live or Zoom, and I love who we are as a community and how we follow Jesus and where he has led us. So if you're joining us for the first time or first time in a long time, we want to say hi there and thanks for joining us. We love seeing folks' faces. So if you feel ready to do that, please put your camera on so we can see you um, and just how lovely you are. If you're not ready to do that, that is entirely okay. This is a, a really beautiful gathering of folks who not only want to belong, but also are committed to making space for others to belong. If you are here on purpose or by accident, out of curiosity or out of obligation, because that happens too, please know that you are welcome here. Uh, let's let's um, stop for prayer. Jesus, I know how you, I love how you know each of us well enough to know what we need. And sometimes you're more aware of it than we are. So if we need to feel cared for today, would you show us how surrounded we are in this gathering? And if we need courage to face forward, would you show us how close you are to us? That we may draw our courage from you. If we need to express our faith, would you be would you open our eyes to show us how that might look and help us to hear your voice this morning and to feel encouraged by what we hear? Amen. And I think that's it. So um, what we're going to do now is we're going to move to our um, Physio Divina. And I'm going to do a little bit of explaining about it first, and then um, we're going to move into it. So, um, Visio Divina is Latin for divine seeing and is similar in practice to Lectio Divina, which most of us are a little more familiar with, where we enter into a passage of scripture. But with Visio, you may have guessed we are going to use an image. Um, so this is a, an ancient prayer practice that allows us to encounter God's presence in what we see and embraces multiple aspects of ourselves, including like the analytic side, the reasoning side, the imagination, and even intuition. God often spoke to his people through dreams and visions and continues to do so because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Um, God wants to be known by his people and will communicate with 
us in many different ways. And there's lots of scripture to back that up. A balanced prayer life comes through multi-sensory connection with God. And we are each wired in different ways. Some of us respond best to the written word, some to the spoken word, some to music, some to art, and some to movement. We can connect to God in prayer through each of these ways. Though we may have a preferred sense through which to pray, the richest prayer life will come through experiencing God through all your senses. This morning, I want to mix scripture with this photo as a way of drawing you towards a particular theme. By the time we meet together again next Sunday, we will have entered into a new season. Seasons are thresholds in time that cause us to take note of how things are around us, uh, how are things around us are changing. So I want to read to you from Ecclesiastes 3 to set the tone for our Visio Divina. I think we're going to have that up on the screen so you can read along as well. So there is an appointed time for everything, and there is a time for every matter under heaven, a time to give birth and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to throw stones and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace and a time to shun embracing, a time to search and a time to give up as lost, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear apart and a, and a time to sew together, a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love, and a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. So I've chosen a photo for our Visio Divina this morning. It should be up on the screen. And you may want to turn off your camera for this part in case you want to like look right in and get close, it might just look a little funny if you're still on the screen, but it's up to you. Um, so as we take a look here, let's just take a deep breath first. Take a deep breath in and then let it all out. Jesus, open the eyes of our heart and enable us to see what you have for us to see in this picture. So take a good first look. Slowly take in all the aspects of the image. Observe your feelings, thoughts, and initial reaction. Observe the forms, the figures, the colors, the lines, the textures, and shapes. And as you focus on the image, what are you noticing?
how does what you are drawn to in the image reflect in your life? As you ponder the image, is there an emotion that accompanies it? Do you have a sense of what season you may be in? or what time it is using uh, time in the Ecclesiastes sense. Consider holding this image and what you have learned from it and use it as a prayer this coming week. Jesus, time is yours and you are never outside of time or away or distracted. You love to enter through new thresholds with us. And so today we accept your presence with us as we enter a new season. Amen. I think what we'll do is we'll just, um, before we go to communion, we'll just um, open up for folks to respond to that. You can share maybe what you noticed or what your prayer will be or what kind of an emotion there was involved. Um, you're welcome. You'll just have to, I mean, you don't have to put your camera on, but you do have to put your mic on. Um, but if you'd like to share, we'd love to hear from you. Hi, good morning. Um, yeah, it was it was interesting, Steve and I were talking about that image and initially the foreground um, made me think of the present day. Um, and all that was unseen was all that was behind me. But as Steve and I were talking, he was saying it looks like um, all the things uh, in in hopefully our days to come that's misted it out. And you can't necessarily see it all clearly. And obviously for Steve and I right now, because of what's been happening in our family, we're in a time of mourning. And so it feels very misted out, but um, trusting God that they're, you know, going along with the scripture, Eden, thank you, um, that there are going to be times of laughter and there are going to be times of joy ahead. So uh, but we can't necessarily see them. So, yeah, just the the viewers, um, yeah, that's how we interpreted it today. That's lovely. It's interesting how imagery can kind of be... Um a back door or a side door or a little window into what's happening in our hearts that um, words or other forms of um, 
of communication just can't get to. I know for me, what I noticed was like, you're looking through a window um, and you can see a lot, like there's a, a lot of space that you can see, but there's way more you can't. And, and even just the, the frame of that um, has its limitations, right? And so do we in what we can see or can't see ahead. Would anyone else like to share? I also was drawn to the kind of unseen and the fog and just uh, some of the thoughts that were going through my head was um, to be curious of the unknown. And the unknown doesn't mean the joy and beauty aren't there as well. And so to not be afraid of what might be unknown or confusing or foggy or even looks dark. Yeah, good thoughts. I um, Helen's got something on the chat. I'll just read it. I felt like it was a time to let go, a time to shun embracing. This is a scary thought as I have to step out into the hazy unknown. It induces a bit of anxiety as I can't see or even imagine the future. It is all hazy. Uh, Helen, thank you for just being that vulnerable with us. Um, I, I'm happy to hold that with you. Just the uncertainty of, um, of our futures and what's to come. Um, Sher Sherry added in the in the uh, chat, this felt like a cloistered time with Jesus and a season of healing. I could see the myriad of other activities and let it go to be with Jesus. It's encouraging to hear how other people are processing something that might be entirely different to what we just experienced ourselves, but um, the imagery is helpful in that. Um, we're going to move to communion now and Mark and Leah are going to uh, lead us in that. And then from there, we're going to uh, enjoy a chat from Sarah this morning. Good morning. I'm Mark and this is Leah. And uh, we're going to walk through communion together. We remember that at the Last Supper, there gathered with the disciples, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. All who come to me shall not hunger. All who believe in me shall not thirst. He gave them the tradition of communion in part as a way to continue to commune with him and partake in relationship with him indefinitely. Jesus knew of the longing they would soon have, and so too with us. We all hunger and thirst, don't we? For love, for connection to God, to belong, to feel safe, for affirmation, freedom from addiction, we all hunger for nourishment and transformation all the time. We gather around our elements of communion together today on Zoom, symbols of bread and wine from Jesus' Last Supper, 
So even if you didn't pick up your elements, you probably have a coffee beside you. You probably have something. Jesus took the bread, gave thanks, broke it, and said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Take and eat it and remember me. He took the cup, gave thanks, and said, Drink this, all of you. This cup is the new covenant, poured out for you and for many. Drink it in remembrance of me. We participate today in the new life that Christ brings. Let us pray. We give thanks, loving God, that we are in relationship with you. You transform us daily and refresh us at your table today and always. Thank you for strengthening our faith and increasing our love for one another. In Jesus' name, amen. And we'd just like to pray for Sarah before she speaks with us today. Lord, first of all, we thank you for um, Sarah giving us permission to walk with her uh, through the journey that she has with you. We thank you that uh, you have encouraged, inspired, and challenged Sarah in this walk that she has. But most of all, we ask that for Sarah and all of us here today, you would let us know that we are loved and that we matter because of you. Amen. Amen. Good prayer. Thank you. Um, I realized when I was getting dressed today that I had a t-shirt that was themed for my message. So um, to save you having the awkwardness of trying to read it, it says this. Um, it's made by the Happy Givers, if you want to look them up. Um, and it says, Jesus is the refugee, the man on death row, the child at the border, the single mom with two jobs, the person with a disability, the friend with an addiction, the transgender co-worker, the kid with no lunch money, how you treat them is how you treat Jesus. And that's pretty much my whole message, but I've got a little bit of time, so I will pad it out just a little. Um, the passage that I have from the lectionary today follows on from the section of Matthew 18 that Pam talked about last week. If you didn't listen to last week, I would really recommend it. It was about being a child in humility and curiosity. I had the joy of being outside with our actual children during the message. Uh, so I listened to it as I was editing it for the podcast. But because it's some of the context for today, I'll do a quick recap in case you wasn't there. So here's how I told the kids the same story as the adults talked about. And it went a little like this. The disciples were talking amongst themselves, probably arguing. You know what people are like. And they came to Jesus with their question. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, I don't know if they wanted to know which one of them was the greatest or maybe just how the whole kingdom of heaven thing worked. But that was the question they came to Jesus with. Jesus responded by drawing a small child into the center. And so I invited our smallest to the center of the circle. And then Jesus told everyone else that this was the kind of person. This child was the model of who was the greatest. So I asked the kids, so why then? Why do you think Jesus did that? Why did Jesus use a small kid as an example? Why do you think Jesus thought that children were so great? And their answers were beautiful. I should have said it when I came back in and Q&R was going on. I should have said, here's what the kids said, because I think they kind of lined up with what the grown-ups said. Their answers were things like, um, children are themselves. They don't try being somebody else. 
Children are curious and want to learn everything. Children are kind to other people. Um, children care about nature and children like to play. Those may be a few other things, but those are the ones I can remember. And they lined up pretty well, I think, with how the grown-ups were talking about it. Um, so well done, grown-ups, you nailed it. Um, so have a listen to Pam's message if you haven't, because it was really good. So I'm backing up and telling you that because although today's story is often told in isolation, it appears in the context of this whole passage and actually of a, a couple of passages together. It follows on from a thing. And to talk about a few verses in isolation is just a bit confusing. It's better to drop it into a slightly bigger picture. Every story actually in the Bible is better if you can drop it into a slightly bigger picture, or even if you can drop it into the whole picture of God's engagement with his people over time. Isolated things can be a little bit dangerous because anything out of context can be told in a way that could make it a little bit suspect. So this next part comes after Jesus's instructions to be humble like a child. And then Jesus launches into this bit of mafia style hyperbole and overstatement to make a point. He says, let me just share it. Um, Anyone who welcomes a child like this on my behalf is welcoming me. So far, so good. But he goes on. But if you cause one of these little ones who trusts in me to fall into sin, it would be better for you to have a large millstone tied around your neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. <laughs> OK, Jesus, a bit much. What sorrow awaits the world because it tempts people to sin? Temptations are inevitable, but what sorrow awaits the person who does the tempting? And now it takes a very dark turn. So if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better to enter eternal life with only one hand or one foot than to be thrown into eternal fire with both of your hands and feet. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better to enter eternal life with only one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fires of hell. Okay, Jesus, that's a little bit extreme. I'm very glad we don't read the Bible literally. He's overstating to make a point, or at least I hope he is. Yeah, I hope he is. So what might his point be? I think Jesus is serious about protecting people and looking out for them, particularly the little ones. Or as the definition for the childlike that Pam gave us last week goes, Jesus is serious about protecting the powerfully innocent and frustratingly immature. And I want to add to that the vulnerable. Jesus turns to his friends and he says, see to it that you do not treat one of these little ones with contempt. I say to you all that their angels in heaven see the face of my Abba, who is in the heavens all day, every day. Now, either the disciples were quite slow learners, or they thought that Jesus wasn't talking about actual children. Because in the next chapter, the disciples stop parents bringing their children to Jesus. Although, you know, in fairness, we don't know if this was chronological. Maybe Matthew's just organized these stories together so that it makes sense as a whole. Um, maybe he's just made it the flow work to tell his point. But it appears that just after this whole thing about not treating little ones with contempt, we find the disciples doing this in chapter 19. One day, some parents brought their children to Jesus so he could lay his hands on them and pray for them. But the disciples scolded the parents for bothering him. 
But Jesus said, let the little children come to me. Don't stop them for the kingdom of heaven belongs to those who are like these children. And he placed his hands on on their heads and blessed them before he left. If we're going to be kind to the disciples and presume there is a broader way to understand the little ones that Jesus is talking about protecting, then who is he talking about? John Chrysostom, hard name, has a few thoughts on this. Uh, From now on, I'm just going to call him John C because Chrysostom, it's too difficult. Um, He lived uh, in Greece in the late 300s and died in the year 407. He was an early church father who is known for his preaching. Steve uh, Mitchinson told me that Chrysostom, which I'm never going to say again, means golden tongue. Uh, He was that good of a speaker. So in teaching on Matthew 18, he has some things to say about who the little ones might be. Now, let me show you. He calls the little ones, not them that are really little, but them that are so esteemed by the multitude, right? So understood by the multitude, the poor, the objects of contempt, the unknown, For how should he be little who is equal in value to the whole world? How should he be little who is dear to God? But them who in the imagination of the multitude are so esteemed. So John's saying the the society, society sees the little ones as the poor, the objects of contempt, the unknown. So that's what the multitude, his multitude, our society might say are the little ones. Who would our society say are the little ones? Who would our society say are the poor, the objects of contempt, the unknown? I would love you to drop into the chat who you think that is. Who would our, maybe not who you think that is, who would our society think that is? Who are the little ones? Pop it in the chat. Those without homes. The addicted. LGBTQ plus. Black and indigenous people of color. People with dementia, those with mental illness, vulnerable population, children, indigenous women, those with diverse abilities, oh you guys are good. Disabled, yeah, invalid. That's deep, invalid. Those who are lonely and alone. Yeah, do you know what? I think you've pretty much got everybody that I put on my list. Um, Prisoners, oh, I hadn't included them. Yes, thanks, That's, that's cool. Anyone other not like me? 
Um, how about people affected by the natural disasters that are going on right now? How about refugees, the poor, the chronically sick, the elderly, so many. Um, maybe others threatened by or displaced by climate crisis. Anyone who finds themselves on the human scrap heap that our world throws people onto when they can't think of what else to do them, with them is who that is. So here again is what Jesus said to his friends. See to it that you don't treat any one of these little ones with contempt. I say to you, I say to you all that their angels in heaven see the face of my Abba who is in the heavens all day and Gaffney adds every day. I don't know what that means. That their angels in heaven see the face of my Abba all day, every day. Is that literally? Metaphorically? Is that something else? But I sense in the way that Jesus says it, along with the hyperbole that came before, that Jesus is placing a huge value on these little ones. That each of the little ones is known individually and personally and cared for by God. Angels, though, that's really curious. I'm sure they are terrifying beings. They always say, be not afraid when they appear. So they must be pretty fierce. This is what Isaiah saw in Isaiah 6. Um, it says, I saw the Lord. He was seated on his throne. His long robe filled the temple. He was highly honored. Above him were the seraphs. Each of them had six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two wings, they covered their feet. And with two wings, they were flying. They were calling out to one another and they were saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord who rules over all. The whole earth is full of his glory. These angels are in the presence of and worshipping God. But look what they're doing with their wings. With two of them, they're flying. With two, they are for some mysterious reason covering their feet. And with the other pair, they are covering their faces. They're in the presence of God and they are worshipping God, but they are not looking on the face of God. Perhaps they can't. Perhaps they are not allowed to. Perhaps God's face is just too glorious for them to be able to look. I don't know how it works. But in this Matthew passage, Jesus is saying that the angels of these little ones do look directly on the face of my Abba, who is in the heavens all day, every day. Their guardian angels don't have to cover their faces like the ones in Isaiah did. They are allowed to look, welcome even, to look at God for all of time. That's how much importance and value Jesus places on the little ones. And if they do, then so should we. Um, John C. again. Do you wish to honour the body of Christ? Do not ignore him when he is naked. Do not pay him homage in the temple clad in silk, only then to neglect him outside where he is cold and ill-clad. He who said, this is my body, is the same who said, you saw me hungry and you gave me no food. And whatever you did to the least of my brothers, you did also to me. What good is it if the Eucharistic table is overloaded with golden chalices when your brother is dying of hunger? Start by satisfying his hunger. And then when what is left, with what is left, you may adorn the altar as well. So it seems that the opposite of showing contempt is showing care. The opposite of showing contempt is showing love, taking time, showing respect. Here's a story um, that I read on the socials.
It's a kid called Jamie. 16-year-old Jamie Harrington saw a man sitting on the edge of a bridge and stopped to ask, are you okay? That one little question saved lives. After convincing him to get help, they exchanged numbers and parted ways. Months later, the man called and said his wife was pregnant with a baby boy. And they named him Jamie. Jamie did it. Jamie did the opposite of showing contempt. He could have just walked by, but he didn't. We honour God by honouring those that God loves. We love God by loving those that God loves. We respect God by showing respect for those that God loves. We give God our time by giving time to those that God loves. Whatever you do for the least of these little ones, you do for me. Right? I think that's somewhere in our church's tagline, loving God by loving what God loves. We expanded it beyond humans to everything because everything belongs. Do not treat one of these little ones with contempt, but instead do the exact opposite. So what if we applied that to not only everyone, but to everything? How about instead of covering our eyes, thinking of those angels, averting our gaze or looking the other way, like the angels in Isaiah's vision, what if we were people who engaged, who looked, and then did what we could to help? Even if, like the angels, in Jesus's story, we can only bring them to God. And although I'm sure there's probably more that we can do, if we only bring them to God, then it's a start. In some churches, they have this bank of small candles that congregants can light. If you want to bring someone to God, you light a candle and you say their name in your heart and talk to God about them if you want to. But the action is to light the candle for them. And I love that. I'm a pretty visual person. Um, and uh, when I pray, I um, bring my friends to Jesus. I draw a, like a symbol. Um, they have like a symbol and a color. There's a thing that I've made up, some kind of code. Um, and I pray for the people that way. And I just, everybody gets their own little symbol and they get, get it drawn. And I'm bringing them to Jesus with that picture. And I name them in my heart as I draw it. And I pray, Lord, have mercy. In our in-person space, we have a box that's labeled prayers of the people. Um, and there are pieces of paper that you can write the names and situations of things. And someone else will read those and join with you in prayer for whatever it is you've put in there for the next couple of weeks. So how else? How else can we do it? How else can we bring people into the presence of God? How do you do it? Maybe there's something that you do that somebody else could learn from. Stick it in the chat if you've got a like, a, oh, I do this. There's probably more that we can do practically, but it's not always obvious or easy. And if we only bring them to God, like I said, then it's a start. And I think God might inspire the next move because God is about action, which we'll see in a minute when we get to the next bit of the story. So think about the people who are your little ones, the ones in your sphere, and how you can bring them to God. And then let's look at the rest of the verses from Matthew. At a first glance, this uh, next bit reads a little bit like one of those word problems you had in math class. You know the kind. Charlene has a pack of 35 pencil crayons. She gives six to her friend Teresa. She gave three to her friend Mandy. How many pencil crayons does Charlene have? Or I saw this video, uh, a little kid, he's reading a math problem. I can't remember if the, what, what the name of the kid in the problem is. But anyway, let's call him Sam. And so the kid reads, uh, Sam has one dollar, one quarter and a nickel. 
how much money does Sam have? And the kid just bursts out laughing, turns to the camera and says, Sam is broke. So anyway, here's the part of Matthew 18 that reads like a math problem. It goes like this. What do you think? Oh, I should show you. Hold on. What do you think? If a person has 100 sheep and one of them wandered off, would they not leave the 99 on the mountain and go in search of for the one that wandered off? If they find it, I tell you all that they... Uh, I tell you all that they rejoice over it more than over the 99 who did not wander off. In the same way, it is not the will of your Abba who is in the heavens that one of these little ones should be lost. This is a short story with the same point as the previous part of the passage. The little one is worthy. The one who was wandered off is worth going looking for. The shepherd in the story doesn't say, oh, well, 99 is close enough. 99's pretty much all of them. Let's not worry about the odd silly one that's wandered off or drifted away. I'm okay with 99. No, says the shepherd, this one matters. There are loads of ways to read this story. Let's try a few out. I don't know how many sermons you've heard on this. I don't know how many sermons I've preached on this, come to think of it. But let's try out a few versions of this story. If God is the shepherd, and the 99 is the heavens, then perhaps humanity is the one that Jesus, the good shepherd, came for. That's one way you can read it. In Colossians 1, it says this, the son is the exact likeness of God who can't be seen. The son is first and he is over all creation. All things were created in him. He created everything in heaven and on earth. He created everything that can be seen and everything that can't be seen. He created kings, powers, rulers, and authorities. All things have been created by him and for him. Before anything was created, he was already there. He holds everything together. So if that's the picture of the whole flock, that's the picture of everything safe and sound. But was it? Because then Jesus came for us. He, <coughs> and he is the head of the body, which is the church. He is the beginning. He's the first to be raised from the dead. That happened so that he could be far above everything else. God was pleased to have his whole nature living in Christ. God was pleased to bring all things back to himself. That's because of what Christ had done. These things include everything on heaven and in on earth and in heaven. God made peace through Christ's blood by his death on the cross. He came to bring all things back to himself. That's the shepherd going to get the one. <coughs> At one time, you were separated from God like a wandered off sheep. You were enemies in your minds because of your evil ways. But because Christ died, God has brought you back to himself. Christ's death has made you holy in God's sight. So now you don't have any flaw. You are free from blame and you must keep your faith steady and firm. You must not move away from the hope of the good news holds out to you. This is the good news that you have heard. It has been preached to every creature under heaven. So this is Jesus, the shepherd coming to save the world, the wandered off one. So let's let's try another let's try another version. Um, what if we are the wandered off one? How good is it to be found? I wonder if you've ever been lost. If you've ever been lost, then you will know how good it is to be found. I saw on the news last night that search and rescue volunteers in BC have found over seventeen hundred people in twenty twenty two, and actually saved the lives of over a thousand of them. Like they were they were in such peril that they wouldn't have made it had they not been found. How great their rejoicing must be when they find who they're looking for. 
Can you imagine being found like that? Or can you imagine being the finder? And that's the third way to look at this. If we uh, collectively, and collectively could be the whole of humanity, could be just our nation, could be our community, or take it down smaller, could be our church or our family. If we collectively are the 99, are you rooting for the shepherd? Are you hoping that your sibling is found? Maybe you're offering to join the shepherd in the search party like the search, search and rescue crews do. There are many, many, many more ways to read that story or have it read us. But that's a that's a start. And you can chip in your thoughts in a minute. But let me just wrap up with a, a meditative poem by a man called Steve Charleston from his book called Spirit Wheel, Meditations from an Indigenous Elder, because I think this poem expresses the heart of the shepherd wonderfully. It's called Someone Waited for Me. Someone waited for me. I will not turn for home until I know we leave no one behind. I will go and search again, seeking any straggler who might not have kept the pace, any elder who moves a little more slowly, any person with a burden that weighs them down. I will seek some sign of them in the shadows. I will wait beside the road with a light to guide them to me. I will not care who they are, where they are from, or how they believe. I will wait to make certain they are safely home before the darkness can overtake them. I will do this because I remember long ago when I struggled to keep up, someone waited for me. Compassion begins in memory. I love that. I can hear the heart of the shepherd and the spirit of God in that. No one is left behind. No one is left in the dark. This is the spirit of the shepherd who shows respect, not contempt for the little ones. Oh, that we would have that spirit in us too. Let's pray. God, we pray for those who are straggling or struggling. We bring to you the little ones that we know and those who are unknown to us, but very much known to you. We metaphorically or even literally light a candle. We name them in our hearts and we bring them to you, God. Lord, have mercy. We pray for those who with the heart of the shepherd are searching rubble or floods for those they have lost. May you give them strength. May we give them aid where we are able. Christ, have mercy. We bring to you those lost in other ways, through estrangement, abuse, addiction, or whatever has driven them out. May their angels who gaze on your face all day, every day, keep them. May they be found and restored and healed where that is possible. Lord, have mercy. Amen. Amen. There you go. I I love how you um how enormous you made the little ones, mm -hmm. both in um 
in stature, but also in how many little ones we have around us. And maybe there's actually more little ones than there are big ones, if we really have eyes to see. Mm -hmm. Um, Sarah quoted from the book Spirit Wheel um, by Stephen Charleston. I'm a I had her read, she read something to me, I think on Monday, <laughs> I ordered the book and had it in 24 hours. It is a stunningly beautiful book. Um, and if you're looking for prayers or reflections, um, this might be the one that you would like to uh, pick up. Um, I'm going to close our, our morning with, um, with this, and it, it's called Praying. And I think it's a blessing. I'm praying where I am. You are praying where you are. Around us, millions are praying. In their own places and in their own times. I'm praying in my language and you in yours. And together with many others, our sacred words rise to heaven in a thousand dialects of the human voice. I am dreaming my holy dreams. You are dreaming. The whole world is dreaming, spinning out hope like a ribbon caught on the morning air. The spirit is watching over me. The spirit is watching over you. The spirit is watching over every soul beneath the stars we share. Let it be so. Amen. Amen. I hope you all have a really lovely week that you feel seen and that you uh, see others as well, that we all see the, the little one. Mm -hmm.